So, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not uncommon for people to have kind of a, an idealistic uh, concept of the early church, whether uh, they're referring to the apostolic church or the first 300 years of the church, okay? But it really is just a romanticizing of the, the early church, uh, regardless of the period. It's just idealism with a tremendous amount of ignorance. Uh, I encourage anybody to get a church history book that is an overview, uh, just so they can get informed about the insanity that has occurred throughout church history. Um, church history in plain language from Bruce Shelley is about this big, this thick, and it's all of church history, uh, as opposed to my shaft that's this much church history. And that one volume is, it's direct, it's succinct, succinct and uh, it gives you an idea of the progression of uh, how the church evolved, if I can use that word, and the, uh, the establishment and refining of theology and doctrine, uh, the troubles that the church faced and went through both within and without. And uh, yeah, there's uh, church history in plain language from Bruce Shelley. It's on Audible. You can also get it for eSword. Um, yeah. I have a hard copy if you want to borrow it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> say that louder, Roger. What'd you say? <laughs> so I have this other one. It's it's really thin, and it has. I suppose that a millennial would would interpret a book this thick to be this thick. Uh, it's about this. It's about this thick, and it has the cool pictures in it. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty good too. I I would say that. It's a good one, too. Yeah. What'd you say? It's called the Storybook Bible. The Storybook Bible, yeah. So you can get it at the kids' section down at the library. No, it's, it's a good one, too. It's a good one, too. So I like that one. I can't remember the name of it or the author. I like it because uh, more than Shelley, he takes a stance and elaborates on the importance of uh, the theology and doctrine that has uh, been sustained and maintained throughout church history. So for that reason, I do uh, like that book. But Bruce Shelley's is good. He just kind of has a way of remaining neutral in his, his presentation of the, the facts. So, and me, even if I disagree with somebody, I want, I want them to tell me what they think. So, yeah, I want to know where they stand. And... Um, because if they're not taking a stand, I don't know who I'm arguing with. So anyway, I don't. Maybe that's a fault of mine. So, and Roger, I was just teasing you. I, I like picture books too, and coloring books. So, um, have you heard people say, um, "If we could just be like the early church," I have heard this so many times. Uh, if we could just do what the early church did, if we could just be like the early church, and, and my first question is always, which one? Which one? First, none of the churches were the same, even though most of all of them that were planted were planted by the same man. But the churches weren't the same. Second, 
No church was without its problems, and some churches had serious problems. Serious problems. Revelation chapter 2 through 3 is devoted to rebuking and correcting some of the most prominent churches in Asia, one of which was planted by Paul, and that's Ephesus, and that was the church that got more of Paul's time than any other church, and yet it had problems. Of course, Paul was dead by then, uh, but it had been under the discipleship of Timothy and of John the Apostle, and it still had problems. Um, yep. Paul himself uh, rebuked and corrected the churches in Galatia, along with the church that we're studying tonight. So those who have this desire to be uh, like the early church, um, yeah, there's just no ideal church to choose from. Uh, the ideal church is a figment of our imagination. Okay, it really is. There are good churches, but there are no ideal churches because they're filled with people like us. We're sinful, uh, we're, we're opinionated, we're proud, uh, we're, we're ignorant, we're divisive, and so on. So, and, but I always like to say, before anybody thinks that they go to a, a church with problems, they should visit the Corinthian church just before Paul wrote this letter. Uh, and then they'll know a church that's really screwed up. Okay. Uh, the church of Corinth was marked by factions, arguing, by drunkenness, by immaturity, idolatry, sexual immorality, and serious theological errors. Not your ideal church. Amen? Yeah. So uh, they actually appeared to be Christian in name only. Yeah. And Paul's tone throughout the book is, you can tell that his tone is not where he wants it to be. And, uh, and, and so I like to often think, what if there was a church in town that was just like the Corinthian church? We would probably think that they were being led by a cult leader. Yeah, as screwed up as they were, but they weren't. It was Paul who planted and discipled the Corinthian believers. So uh, with that, you've got to be careful attributing the problems of a church to the leadership. They may be part of the problem, but not necessarily. So um, ex another example is that is looked how, look how messed up the, the disciples were sometimes. And yet Jesus was not to blame for the, the knuckle-headed things that they did. Okay. So anyway, be that as it may, uh, the church in Corinth had some serious problems, and um, because of the household of Chloe, remember Paul was in Ephesus across the Aegean Sea, and somebody, a family in the church, Chloe's family, sent somebody over the Aegean Sea to uh, bring word to Paul of all that was going on in Corinth. And so Paul gets information from Chloe's household, and then he's provoked uh, to write this epistle. So let's, let's get into this troubling letter. Let's talk about authorship first. Um, Paul immediately identifies himself as the author in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then Paul names himself seven more times uh, in the letter. So that's a pretty good indication that he's the author. Uh, almost all of the, the early church fathers, they attribute authorship to Paul. 
no serious scholar today questions Paul's authorship. The, the most um, uh, aggressive uh, skeptics of the Bible, uh, they attribute authorship to Paul, to, the, to his letters, not just 1 Corinthians, but to all of his New Testament letters. And uh, so I think really to, uh, you'd have to avoid all the evidence to come up with an alternative uh, author. So we'll just accept Paul as the author. Uh, it seems to be most reasonable. Uh, question, when did he write it? According to the evidence from Acts chapter 18, when Paul was in Corinth, and then we have a detail about a, um, a Roman ruler named Gallio. Uh, we know when he was in office, um, and that puts Paul in, in Corinth about 50 to 51 AD, and then he moved on from there, did ministry, and finally wound up in Ephesus, where he was there for about two and a half years, and it was during his, the, the, the tail end of his time there that he wrote 1 Corinthians, and that puts us at about 55 to 50, 56 AD. And um, so that's important. I think the most important thing is the, the theological contributions that uh, came to us uh, because of the, the problems in Corinth. Uh, now, we obviously would not um, be thankful for the problems in the Corinthian church, um, but it is because of all those problems that Paul was forced to address so many important truths that are not mentioned elsewhere with the same amount of attention. Okay, so, um, so let, me, let me give you, uh, we're going to talk about four of these. Uh, issues that are addressed by Paul that really, uh, they're either addressed very differently in 1 Corinthians uh, or they're not even addressed at all elsewhere. And it all came out of the sin and problems of Corinth. So the one is uh, Paul addresses church discipline uh, along with the, the church's, we might say, their disciplinary jurisdiction. Okay? Only in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, Paul addresses marriage, divorce, and remarriage from within the Gentile world, mentioned nowhere else. Okay? Uh, God's authority structure in the church and the home, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that's discussed elsewhere but differently in 1 Corinthians. And then issues regarding the resurrection. Of course, the resurrection is talked about everywhere, but chapter 15 is the most uh, concise. It, it, it's, it's a very clear apologetic uh, for the resurrection. And uh, so that's an important chapter. So let's visit each of these briefly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is a very interesting chapter. It's a short chapter, but there's a lot of things that you can learn from it, both in regard to um, church discipline, and then we might say the parameters, the, the borders, if you will, of the church's disciplinary jurisdiction. Um, yeah. So uh, Paul's instruction uh, here comes from a real example rather than a hypothetical one. So Jesus in Matthew 18, it's a hypothetical situation that he brings up. And uh, he says, if your brother sins against you, then go to him, confront him, and, and uh, if, he, uh, if he agrees with you, you've won your brother. If not, then you take two to three people to confront your brother. And he gives this process. Uh, but here in, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about a real-life situation that's going on in the church, and uh, it's an interesting one. So 
he begins by rebuking the church for things that they were permitting and celebrating, which happened to be a man that was having sex with his stepmother. They were celebrating it in the church, okay? And so with some instruction, uh, Paul tells the church to kick the guy out of the fellowship, but he says nothing about the woman, which indicates that she was not a believer, okay? And so Paul concludes uh, this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I'm going to abbreviate some of it uh, so that you don't lose track of his argument. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle. And that brings up an interesting issue. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians, and Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle. So it's very possible that 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. Okay, But Paul's initial letter that he wrote to the, the Corinthians uh, was not preserved, and it's not necessary that it was. If it was necessary, uh, the Holy Spirit would have preserved it for us. Okay? But Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside, that is, outside of the fellowship of believers? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. You see the, limit, the limits of jurisdiction? Okay, now this is very different because uh, we're no longer in the nation of Israel where the law of God was over the, the borders of Israel and it was never pressed beyond that. But now, in the new covenant, it's not a nation, it's, it's an organism that can be found inside of any nation. But that organism, that group of believers, they are a self-policing uh, community of people. Their jurisdiction is themselves and not beyond. Okay? So things are, are different now. And uh, for if there happens to be any Jews in the audience, this might be new information. Okay, perhaps. Perhaps not. It depends on what their uh, theology was to begin with. So the church does not have jurisdiction or authority to discipline those outside of the faith. Only God has the authority to do that. And of course, he can do that by different means, right? He can do it uh, directly. He did that with two of Judah's sons, you remember. He killed them because of their sin. He can do it with the state, okay, the government, or he can do it in the final judgment. He's sovereign. He gets to choose how and when he does that, okay? But he has not uh, given that authority to the church, okay? Now, the, the, this particular chapter addresses a group of doctrines uh, that are, are similar. The difference really is in the degree at which they're imposed. Uh, perhaps you've heard of theonomy. Uh, it means God's law. Uh, and then there's dominion theology. Now, we, as evangelicals, we believe in a form of dominion theology, but not the way I'll explain it in a minute. There's also a theology that's like these, but less, we might say, um, aggressive, is kingdom now. Have you guys heard of any of those theonomy, uh, dominion theology, or kingdom now? 
uh, all of them, to some degree, believe that the church should be in charge of government and the doctrines of Scripture should rule society. And whenever a society or the people in the society stray from the Scriptures, the state then should uh, punish them. Okay, that's, that's theonomy and especially theonomy and dominion theology. And they hold that the Old Testament laws should be imposed on society and, and so forth. Whereas uh, Kingdom Now says, that, no, just the New Testament concepts should be imposed on society. But my question is, what does Paul have to say about all this? Okay, what does he have to say? And uh, he says that, he says, what business do we have judging those outside the church? And in judgment in the context is disciplining, Right? Because he says you have to exclude that person from the fellowship. That is the most extreme form of discipline that the church can uh, impose on an unrepentant sinner. Now, but what has been the strongest punishment imposed throughout church history? Death. That's right. That's right. Death. Uh, Not a prescription for the church. And neither do I want that authority. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to have anything to do with that. Nothing at all. I want to leave that to government. I want to leave it to the Lord. Uh, unless you break into my home and try to hurt my family, then I'm the government. So, um, yeah, our jurisdiction is confined to the body of believers. Now, I don't think that this precludes the individual believer's responsibility to participate in good policy and, uh, and, and, and legislation, uh, I think that we have the moral obligation to help pass legislation that makes society a better place, okay? I don't think uh, we can avoid doing that, especially when those laws have to do with defending the weak, the helpless, the defenseless, the young, and so forth. And I mentioned that Sunday. Um, so uh, we just have to be careful that uh, we're not legislating things that are meant only for the church, Now, there's a lot of crossover in morality, right? Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2, that there is what all people know intuitively. Uh, We know that there's a God, uh, and we know right from wrong from our conscience. And so it would be a good policy for government to establish, uh, rather the government to establish policy based upon that. And many governments have. When you look at um, the Code of Hammurabi, it's, a, it's actually a, a legal code that was written before the law of Moses uh, in, over by Iraq. And that code looks very much like the law of Moses in the principles of basic morality. And uh, it's good stuff. Some of it's out there, but a lot of it's good. So anyway, I don't want to get too far off on that. You can ask questions about it at the end if you want. 1 Corinthians 7. Um, Uh, Paul talks about issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, uh, not spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 6 and 19. Because remember, Jesus is speaking to the context of everybody, they're all covenant people. And so they are subject then to the covenant. But when we come out of Israel and the gospel is taken to a pagan world and the gospel reaches one party, one person in a, in a pagan couple, now what? We have a pagan who is married to a Christian. 
What do we do? Does the Christian leave the pagan? What are the rules for... Now, we're not to be unequally yoked. We're talking about uh, they're already married and then one of them comes to Christ. So the scriptures don't permit the marrying of non-believers, a believer to a non-believer. But what happens when one person in the marriage is reached? What are the rules that govern that? That issue required brand new revelation. Okay? And uh, so Paul adds some issues. He says, if the non-believer wants to depart, he gives them a, a permissive imperative and says, let the non-believer leave. And the word depart, he uses as divorce. Okay? And then, uh, then he talks about remarriage and so forth. So that's not what Jesus was talking about. Uh, this is something new, something new altogether. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, along with the other problems in the church, there was confusion among the sexes and the roles. And so Paul describes the, the biblical structure of authority for church and home. And to clear it up, he illustrates God's structure of authority, uh, first from the Trinity and then from the order of creation. So as far as the Trinity is concerned, Jesus and his Father, they're equal in deity, in majesty, in all of their qualities, okay? But the Father has greater authority than Jesus, okay? Well, just as a husband and wife are equal in dignity and value, uh, except my wife is more intelligent than me, but I'm not sure how that plays into this. But the husband has greater authority, okay? Has greater authority. He's not necessarily smarter, as is the case in my relationship. Uh, he may not be a whole lot of things compared to his wife. But, as Paul argues, he was created first, and so to him was granted the authority. And the woman was created to help the man serve the glory of God. Um, sections like that in the scriptures don't generate any questions in our culture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The gifts. The gifts. It's not just a section of theology on the gifts, it's corrective. There was problems in Corinth when it came to the, uh, the practice uh, and application of the gifts. Okay? And um, so, Paul provides here the most comprehensive instructions. Now let me kind of uh, illustrate the difference here with, with from Corinth to the other places that it's talked about. In the book of Acts, we see the gifts used but they're not discussed or regulated. They're just practiced. In Romans 12, Paul encourages us to use the gifts, but that's it. In Ephesians 4, Paul provides the great purpose for the ministry gifts. In 1 Peter 4, Peter tells us uh, to be faithful to use our gifts, but no instruction really. So it's only in 1 Corinthians uh, that Paul really gives any real detail. He discusses their divine origin, their diverse application, their real purpose, and their proper practice. It's very instructive. Okay? Now, imagine <laughs> what churches could look like without 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Things are weird enough. Okay? But without a little direction, I don't know how far things would have gotten. Do you know what I'm getting at? We needed some more instruction. And uh, so I'm thankful for uh, what was provided in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 
All right, last one, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, there were doubts uh, and misunderstandings regarding the resurrection, okay? And Paul gives an extensive defense or apologetic for it. He refers to those that saw Christ uh, alive after the resurrection. He says more than 500 people. Uh, he mentions others by name. He, does, he discusses the implications of no resurrection, uh, heresies surrounding the resurrection. Uh, one of them was baptism for the dead. Okay, that's brought up. There's an inconsistency in the theology with the Corinthians. And then also the future expectation uh, because of the resurrection. So you have four uh, major uh, theological contributions that come out of the problems uh, within the Corinthian church. It's good stuff. So we don't rejoice over them having problems, but we're thankful for the revelation that resulted from it. All right, let's look at the outline. Man, the clock moves so fast on Thursday nights. All right, because of the nature of the book, we've already talked about their problems, so if you're gonna outline the, the book of Corinthians, it's gonna be an outline of problems, okay? And so the first, chapter one through four, is about division in the church. Uh, we have the folly, uh, we have uh, of division, the, f the flesh, its involvement in division, or I would say rather the source of division is the, the carnal nature, and then the fallacy of it. Uh, chapter one through two is a rebuke. <laughs> the whole book is a rebuke. Uh, but it's for the church squabbling over who is a better teacher, Paul or Apollos. The church has been messed up forever. What's the best color of paint for the wall? Let's split the church over this. That's Christian maturity, okay? Chapter three is a rebuke for being carnal and immature uh, and ignorant regarding the different roles that Paul and Apollos played in, in the planting and the discipling of the church, okay? Paul planted it, and then Apollos watered. They, they, were, they worked well as a team together. Okay? Uh, Paul, he, he's very straightforward about his uh, teaching presentation and about Apollos's. Paul was a bit dry, perhaps. Uh, they, they said his speech was contemptible, but Apollos, oh, he preached like an angel. But they both had their place uh, in the ministry there. Okay? And then chapter four is a continuation of his rebuke and then it's concluded with warnings of Christ's judgment. He says, don't mess around, okay? Chapter seven through 11, we have disorder. Um, I forgot to mention, I've re-kind of vamped uh, Norman Geisler's um, outline for this. And he has their lawlessness in chapter five, lawsuits in chapter six. Now chapter five, we said, it's this issue of sexual morality in the church by this certain individual, and uh, it talks about church discipline, and it talks about church's uh, disciplinary jurisdiction. Chapter six, Paul discovers that people, believers within the church, are suing one another in a, a public court, a civil court, rather than having the, the, some wise people or the elders of the church settle these matters biblically, okay, where there would be repentance and forgiveness and restitution, things of that nature. But they're going to the world. Paul says, this is to your shame. 
he says, don't you realize that one day the world is going to be involved in judging the world? The church is going to be involved in judging the world? Uh, when would that be, by the way? We do not judge the world now, but Paul says the day is coming when we will, we will judge the world. It's the millennium. That's right. The millennium. And then also, uh, Paul provides some warnings about uh, sexual morality. He says, though fornicator, uh, homosexual, and so forth will inherit the kingdom of God, but the beauty of the, the context of it is there, he says, of which were some of you. So out of this debauched culture of Corinth, people were being redeemed, these pagans. So it's troubled still. Then difficulties, chapter 7 through 11, uh, marriage, uh, meets, ministry. Man. Chapter 7 provides uh, remedies for sexual morality and then uh, a whole bunch of guidelines uh, for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That The issue of a believer married to an unbeliever is just one huge one that is not mentioned in the Gospels. That's the one that is so worth pointing out, okay? Chapter 8, Paul addresses the issue of meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. Okay, can Christians eat it or not? Because see what would happen, as Paul elaborates further in chapter 10, is that uh, a lot of the meat would first be offered in the temple, and then they would take that meat and they would sell it to those who were selling in the marketplace. And so the, the meat in the market would have first been offered to an idol. Well, can we eat that stuff or not? And see, a young believer who just came out of paganism or Judaism equates eating with worshiping. How could I eat that? Because if I eat it, it means I'm worshiping Apollo or Diana or whatever. Okay? Yeah. He should definitely not eat at this point in his Christian faith. And a mature believer who knows that it's just meat, as Paul says, uh, should not flaunt his freedom in front of a young believer by eating the meat. So there's nothing wrong with the meat. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with eating it as long as no one's conscience, Paul says, is defiled. So Paul says, if, you, if you're thinking, ooh, he says, don't eat it because it'll defile your conscience. He says to the mature believer, if there's young believers around, don't eat it, because you don't want to defile their conscience. So take care of your brother, basically. And that's expanded in, uh, further in chapter 10, verse 23 through 33. Some more difficulties. Um, did I skip one of them? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, morality, what a surprise, chapter 10. And then uh, Memorial Feast. Chapter 10 is a warning against all things idolatry. Okay, the pa the, these pagans that have come to Christ, we, we can't forget that they were raised pagan. The culture that they live in is pagan. All of the, the customs, the festivities, the holidays, everything is pagan. Nothing that is done is somehow detached from an idol and, and some kind of pagan thing. So this is all they know. It's, it's in their habits. It's in their lifestyle. And they just have not totally come out of it clean. But the things that they're still entangled in are bizarre. 
One of them is ritual sex for uh, fertility blessing. That's one of the ones that Paul mentions. And then the other one is drinking ritual wine uh, and then come and in the temple itself and then coming into fellowship with a demon is what Paul says. And Paul says you cannot drink the cup of demons in that temple and then make an about face and go to the fellowship of the church and take the cup of the Lord. He says you can't do that. Okay, So there's a lot of uh, correction in there. Chapter 11 uh, is the, the, uh, the chapter on headship, but then it ends with a rebuke and a correction regarding the Lord's table. So what was happening was uh, they were going to have a, an agape feast that night where the Lord's table would be presented and celebrated. But the wealthier people who had servants taking care of their affairs, they would get to the church earlier. They would drink all of the communion wine and all of the food, and they would get drunk in the process. And when the people, the average person that got there, okay, because most, the majority of the, the Roman Empire were slaves, so they had to get all their duties done, if they even got them all done. And by the time they showed up, the poor people, there was no way to celebrate the Lord's table, and there was no food to eat. Could you imagine if that happened here? Not that we run out of food, because that happens, because you people can eat, but, uh, but that it turned into a drunken party here. It's insane. It's insane. So I don't ever want to hear you say to me that our church is screwed up. Okay? We, we, haven't, we haven't come to this place yet. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's wild. So some final concerns, chapter 12 through 16. Uh, of course, we've talked about 12 through 14 concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, then chapter 15, we've talked about concerning the gospel, the resurrection. And then chapter 16 ends uh, concerning this collection for the, the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then Paul says his goodbyes, the book is over. And that's 1 Corinthians. Any questions? You can ask anything. Was I going too fast for you to even take notes? Sorry. Margaret, I'm never slow enough for you. You need to learn how to, what's that thing called, Roger? No, brain mapping? Mind mapping. Yeah, we've got to hook Margaret up with some mind mapping. <laughs> it's amazing how much territory Paul covers in 1 Corinthians and how many different issues are addressed. And uh, yeah, I think that the smoke was just coming off of his pen because he was, he was upset and he was addressing some crazy issues. Mm -hmm. But then jury duty, people come up and say, what excuse because I can't judge somebody if they're not a Christian. Oh, okay, okay. Well, the, I think that when we look at the context of 1 Corinthians 5, we have holding Christians to Christian standards. I don't think that we should expect the world to have the same exact standards that we have. But if it's an issue of murder, an issue of theft, an issue of uh, extortion, 
blackmail, whatever, I believe we have an obligation uh, to try to make our culture, our society a better place. So, but I wouldn't uh, try to punish them for not coming to church on Sunday or not giving or even if they were fornicating. I don't think the church uh, has the authority to punish people that fornicate. So... Mm -hmm. Stop and frisk. You know, should we be doing that? Yeah. Uh, you look at all the issues in front of the courts, illegal aliens coming into the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good one because I think the government has a responsibility to regulate it, but then it's kind of nice for the church because then we don't have to go to Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador to preach the gospel. Uh, so, what's that? Uh, it's happening everywhere regardless, and it's always been happening. So, but yeah, are there gray areas? Or, yeah, there definitely are. I think that people need to pray about it and, and um, vote with what they believe is correct. What do you think? I think you have your worldview based on your Christian principles. Mm -hmm. Whenever I have to judge something that's going on in the world, I can't help but use my Christian influence to judge me. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, of course we're judging it in one context by our perspective about it, but in the context of 1 Corinthians 5, it's punishing it. So that's a different kind of judgment, right? If you see something that's wrong, mm -hmm. then you have to take a stand against it. Yeah. And the stand you take against it, even mildly, right. can be considered a Well, I was talking about you seeing something on TV and you evaluate your moral judgment to that is that it's wrong. But then there's also the judgment of, of bringing some kind of punishment upon it. So if I'm judging something that's going on in the school, and I take my kid out of school and punishing the school by not giving those tax dollars to the school. No. I still have to pay, I still have to pay taxes to the school. <laughs> and none of my kids are... Yeah, they still have to be registered. But at least my property taxes haven't gone down. So, yeah. Well, hold on. Let me, let me answer that real quick. I would say that my obligation to my children exceeds the, the uh, funding the, the school system. So I have to choose which one is more important. And... My, my children's sanctity and discipleship in the faith far exceeds them receiving you know, a piece of my wallet. But if I need to buy something at a store, and I have two stores, and one upholds Christian principles, mm -hmm. and one is supporting some sort of liberal cause of yeah. abortion, and I choose to use one store instead of the other, I'm punishing that store by not giving them my business. I don't know if that's active punishment. I knew Mike was going to ask a question that really couldn't be answered. Am I, am I rewarding them or am I punishing the other one by not doing business? What if I drive past that store and go 30 miles down the road and spend so extra money on scouts? Does that become punishment at that point? What do you think? I think it is a model for punishment. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think we're getting so subjective now that it's, it's um, there are certainly black and white things that we should, you know, be involved in. And, and I, it's not the black and white that I'm yeah, I know. And you never ask black and white questions, Mike. So that's true. I think that we need to pray about things. I think we need to think about it. I think that by avoiding the one store, you miss an opportunity to share the gospel, to be an influence. Um, so I think that there's certainly different ways to look at that stuff. Yeah. What if instead of, like, like I think what you're talking about, it's like that passive protest, and then you mentioned like actively protesting outside, mm-hmm. what if you take that to actively um, speaking against that business online, mm-hmm. for instance? Like, we're, what about that? That would be some social punishment. Do, would, I, would I do that? I think that's, well, it depends on what it is. If it's, if it's Planned Parenthood, um, I don't mind addressing that in a godly, uh, winsome fashion, stating the facts and uh, trying to win people over to my position. Uh, but I don't believe that Christians really have the right to just go out and slander. Yeah. Book of James would support me on that. Because that's their business too. Planned it is a business. Yeah. Getting rid of it, rather. Yeah. And so they're being punished by NRA people. Yeah. But that's not the church. No, but I mean, but people yeah. that are members of the church might mm-hmm. not participate in that. Yeah. I won't shop there because of it. No, I'm teasing. I even have a gift card for dicks. I've got to go get hooked up. So, Yeah, you know, and that's one thing is, um, you know, like when it comes to our taxes, we know our taxes go to immoral causes. Uh, and Jesus knew that when he had the discussion about taxes, and he still said, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, because we're responsible for paying our taxes. God will hold government for, you know, accountable for what they do with our taxes. Um, it's going to come down to where, I mean, where are you going to be able to shop <laughs> in the next 20 years? Um, Chick-fil-A, that's it. You just eat chicken, that's all you're going to eat. So... Yeah, and it's pretty good chicken. That's right. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think there are some challenging things uh, about that, and I think that we need to be cautious. And you have the extreme people, like I was talking about with theonomy and dominion theology. Uh, dominion theology and theonomy believe that we should take all the capital crimes of the Old Testament and impose on American society. And that would mean that we would have to start killing homosexuals. And... Uh, and while we, are, we definitely disagree with the lifestyle, as the church, we've been called to try to reach them, not exterminate them. So, so yeah, you have the extremes. You have, the, I think, the obvious things, and you have the gray issues. And so, yes, ma'am. I'd hope not. You know, some people will go along like in the colleges. They're trying to get people to think that the homosexual lifestyle is okay. Um, some of the classes I sat in were just terrible. 
mm-hmm. what is acceptable and what isn't. Yeah. And to speak against uh, whether a person was a male or female. If some guy claimed he was a girl, if you called him a guy, supposedly in modern day society you could be arrested for mm-hmm. I think the Supreme Court just dealt with that, by the way, and, and shot it down. Uh, on your question, Mike, you know, reading different uh, theologians that have written on Christian ethics, they, that gray area is a, a battleground. Yeah. So where, how far do we take it? And uh, what kind of participation, what level of participation? So I certainly don't have all the answers. Well, let's stand up and pray. All right, well, Lord, we thank you. And, um, well, our, our, our duty is to serve the glory of God. And so many times when I've come to a situation where I just, I'm not really sure what's best, I try to evaluate it through what would, what would bring the most glory to God. And uh, so, Lord, in, in tough situations, I pray that you would grant us wisdom and grace, uh, that we might speak rightly, we might represent you well, and, uh, and that that would have a good end, Lord, for us, our families, our society. And, uh, yeah. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I just pray that you encourage their hearts and, uh, and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.